0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name's John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witty. Get ready to go against the grain. How are you doing today, Michelle?
1: Feeling much better, John.
0: Good, 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 good. I'm glad to hear it. It was another kind of crazy weekend, though, wasn't it? We had this uh, yeah. incident at the Capitol, and I have yes. to think that... I have to think that this is going to be something of a trend. I think we're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing. A guy drove up to the Capitol. Um, you can't get close to the Capitol anymore. It's not like mm-hmm. it, it used to be. But he, he drove into a barricade. Um, his car somehow caught fire. It, it seems that he lit something on fire inside the car. He got out, out of the car, shot several shots into the air, and then killed himself. Uh, When the cops began walking up to the car to see what the heck he was doing, he was ID'd as a guy, uh, a 29-year-old man from Delaware. His name is Richard York. They don't know why he did this. Um, but But, you know, this kind of crazy thing happens every once in a while at the Capitol.
1: But it doesn't always happen in the context of
0: exactly
1: a raid on the FBI raiding the former president's exactly. Uh, and then, you know, in the same weekend, we had demonstrations outside of FBI buildings, including um, uh, not very many people, right? Like tw- 25 yeah. people outside the Phoenix FBI building. Um, but some of them very obviously and heavily armed, which is something I guess we also get to get used yeah. to in the United States now with more and more states. Allowing uh, people to carry weapons and to carry them openly under mm-hmm. more circumstances, so you know, I think it's natural that people are a little unsettled, and this could turn out to be completely unrelated, or it could turn out to be just a the thing that you know not ideological, but the thing that crazy people are going to latch onto for a little while. We just don't we don't yeah. know yet. I'm seeing that, the you know, the MPD and the Cong- congressional police, Capitol Police are saying they don't have any indication yet that this guy was uh, politically motivated. He did have a criminal record, but they're not saying what it was. Yeah. And so I guess we just wait and see. But like these protests certainly are not unrelated. And the dude who, um, you know, decided to commit suicide by cop in Ohio last week, mm. that definitely wasn't unrelated. No,
0: no. That yeah. was definitely not unrelated.
1: And I also, can I so- tell you something, please. John? I noticed this little disclaimer that NPR put at the bottom right. of its um, report on this, uh, deciding it needs to tell people what breaking news is and how to understand it. You know, I wrote to kind of make fun of them, but it's not a crazy, th- you know what I mean? Like it, it is, I guess, true that you have to do this. So they wrote this little disclaimer that said at the bottom of the piece, this is a breaking news story. Some things reported by the media will later turn out to be wrong. We will focus on reports from officials and other authorities, credible news outlets and reporters who are on the scene will update as the situation develops. So on one hand, like, yeah, this is always true in breaking news situations. Like the the a clearer picture comes into focus with some with some distance, right? Yes. But- I don't know. We're also in an atmosphere where there's quite a lot of focus on who isn't isn't credible, and the reasons for uh, this credibility is we're going to talk about a little later in the show are sometimes really suspect. And so, on mm-hmm. one hand, yeah, you do have to understand this if you are going to consume breaking news, um, I guess, uh, responsibly or or like consume it in a way that helps you understand the process. But on the other hand, again, another opportunity to say. Don't worry, we'll tell you who's credible and who
0: isn't. I hate that so much.
1: Mm-hmm. But,
0: but that's the case. We're seeing it more and more and more. I'll tell you, I, I used to be a, a devoted listener of NPR. Devoted. Mm-hmm. Um, until they did me wrong a couple of times. Ooh. Yeah. You know, one time um, they sort of set me up. It was right after I had blown the whistle in the torture program. Like the day after, two days after. They put me on with Senator Roy Blunt. Um, who at the time was the chairman of the uh, of the Senate Intelligence Committee, mm-hmm. and he made a comment that um, that I should be hanging from a tree. Ooh, yeah, and uh, and they're like, and what's your response, Mister Kiriakou? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like it was a total setup, and I said, yeah. I said, Senator Bunt is a blunt is a, a a political animal. He's up for reelection, and I'm an easy target today. That was all I could think to say. That that, sounds like a good response. Oh, thank you. The second time was they invited me for a a talk, uh, like a 30-minute talk on um, Morning Edition. And so I, you know, make the long trek up to Capitol Hill. They're up on uh, North Capitol Street. It's very inconvenient to get there. And, And it was another ambush interview. And I didn't concede one inch. To that awful, terrible Steve Inskeep. And so uh, they cut my 30-minute interview down to four or five minutes and uh, cut out my defense. And I called the producer and I said, don't ever call me again. I will never, ever go on NPR again. They're just as bad as everybody else.
1: Good on you. Yeah, NPR. I mean, you know, we, we know who they are.
0: Yeah. I mean, I started listening to them because they were the only ones that would say, "Hey, there's this new musical movement in Cuba. It's really mm-hmm. cool. Listen to this amazing group." And I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh my god, what great music!" And I I tracked down the CD and sent it to my dad. And my dad's like, "You know, this is what's so great about NPR. Nobody would ever play this kind of thing." And and then they just turned. Can you learn? It's all
1: funded by the CIA. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, hey, I listen to the I listen to the morning digest every morning because I I need like a tw- a twelve minute breakdown of news stories I might have missed. But you just take it with the same grains of salt. You exactly. take everything else, and that's you, all you know, can do. If you're, if you want to, if you want to spend your time doing that, you put that together into a picture of the world that you, you know, can assess to be credible, yes. but it's become more and more work for people recently. And I don't, um, I don't blame people for tuning out if it's not, if it's not your job, it is really a lot of work to try to understand things, uh, Indeed. you know, with, with some confidence,
0: Hey, you have flagged uh, an interesting article or set of articles for Mm -hmm. us on uh, the fact that the military is just not able to meet its recruiting numbers. Now, it's it's certainly been in positions like this in the past, Mm -hmm. but they're barely able to get to 50 percent of their recruitment goals.
1: Oh yeah, the the this is about the army in particular. The army secretary was talking to NBC and uh, revealed that with only seven weeks left in the fiscal year, the army has recruited about fifty-two percent of its goal for this year and is going to end up short by as many as fifteen thousand recruits. Um, they, the army has already dropped its um a, the it's the number of troops it's authorized to have ready. It yeah. started off at. 485,000. It's lowered the number to 476,000. Um, but even the army secretary said, you know, we, we are holding on to to people. Retention is high, but if this recruiting shortage continues, it could present a readiness issue for the military across the board, because this isn't just the army. This is all branches of the military that are having a lot of trouble. NBC says, uh, it, it looked into, um, you know, recruiting efforts and found a record low percentage of young Americans who are eligible to serve and then an even smaller fraction who are willing to consider it. Uh, and, and some of the reasons is that more and more people are being disqualified for obesity, um, criminal records and drug use, which has been a question the army has been trying to tackle, especially as state by state marijuana at the very least is yeah. becoming legalized. Yeah. And generally speaking, you know, you can get a waiver. If you drink alcohol, you can get a waiver. If you have smoked marijuana. Um, interesting though, for what, for what it calls hard drugs, I think people tend to forget the way these are classified by some of these big organizations. Like if you've done, listen, if you've been a bartender and therefore you have definitely done a lot of cocaine, (laughs) you're ruled out, uh, ecstasy, a hard drug, you're not going to be able to go. And so you know, it's like really ruling out anyone who grew up in the suburbs, basically, where you couldn't get a beer, but you could be smoking opium in the Starbucks parking lot when you were 17, if you wanted to. Yep. yep. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, but the other thing is, I think it's also, I would hope, the people are less and less interested in joining this military, especially if you know they are more and more able to see that these missions they're being sent on are clearly not in the interests of, you know, supporting human rights around the world and spreading yes. democracy but in the inter- in the sort of opaque financial interests of a few defense contractors.
0: Yeah, we're going to actually get into that with uh, some of our guests too because that's a very important uh, important point. It, people mm-hmm. people are looking to see what the US military has committed itself to over the last several decades and they're thinking or they're concluding that they You know, don't want to be a part of that. It was interesting to me, too, that just a few years ago, the Marine Corps was having trouble um, recruiting people. And Mm -hmm. so they changed their rule that you can't have full sleeve tattoos, Mm -hmm. uh, that you can't have uh, uh, marijuana arrests, a whole bunch of stuff. Then they later changed it so that you didn't even need a high school diploma anymore. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, they don't have enough people to fill these billets.
1: I mean, some of this is rolling with the times, right? Sure. You shouldn't be disqualified from anything for having smoked marijuana. You shouldn't be disqualified from anything for for having tattoos, unless your tattoos are individually particularly offensive. Right. Um, So this makes sense. But I don't, uh, you know, and I mean, obesity is also like the sort of big flashing issue here, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is one where this is obviously an enormous public health problem in the United States. I don't know that, uh, there should be much rolling with the times on this one. I mean, I do think some of the ways that we measure obesity are a little bit, um, unrealistic. Like the BMI is a real, obviously just pretty garbage indicator, I think. Um, but you know, there are some, some, you know, some sort of basic level of physical fitness seems like it needs to be maintained. So that to me is the big one. And the other, uh, you know, I would hope, is, is motivation. And also maybe people seeing that, you know, people are coming back from these war. Like, where's the, I don't know. I get the sense and I could be wrong here, but I get the sense that, um, veterans also perhaps used to think they were treated better, you know, and now what you get, and I think we talked about this a little bit last week, you get a whole lot of uh, of sort of subjective and intangible hero worship and like tangible to the extent that, you know, coupons at Denny's or whatever, but you do have to fight for every scrap of health care. Uh, ha- how long was the fight that took to get that burn pit legislation yeah. passed? Just you know, passed. you have to fight to be able to live in quarters where your, your paint isn't poisoned and your water isn't mm. poisoned. And, you know, for maybe some people actually actually living in the epicenter of, uh, the, the world's greatest polluter is a, is a source of concern.
0: You're absolutely right. This is something that I, that, that people are not blind to. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's something that the government, uh, doesn't address. You know, I, we've got just a minute, but I'll, I'll tell you real quickly, my brother-in-law, um, spent uh, 20 years in the air force and he, he's a decorated veteran of, uh, the first Gulf war, but he, um, he was exposed to toxins there and it's affected his his health. It's given him this condition called brittle bones, right? Mm. So he's broken both hips. He's broken his legs. He's had to have his knee replaced. He has spinal problems. It's all from these chemicals that he was exposed to. Mm. Now, when they go to home Depot and he shows his veterans card, he gets 15% off when they go to Denny's. Yes, he gets a, you know, buy one adult dinner, get one free. We went to the, to the, what do you call it? The uh, Holocaust Museum when they were here in Washington, Mm -hmm. we all got in for free because he's a veteran, but try to get medical care. Best of luck. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible.
1: Yeah. But you know what? If this keeps up, maybe we will see, uh, you know, some some more tinkering around with our immigration policies to allow people to use this as a pathway to citizenship. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not a, not above doing that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a great way to to lure people who don't have any other option to live here with the full the full rights uh, and, and financial privileges of U.S. citizens.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um. There's an announcement coming out of the D.C. government uh, where they are expanding eligibility for monkeypox, uh, the monkeypox Mm -hmm. vaccine rather. This Mm -hmm. weekend in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river where I happen to live, they did the same thing. And interestingly enough, they had a public event in Arlington on Saturday Wow! where they had a guy with monkeypox, (gasps) right, wearing a mask. Yeah, he's wearing a mask and he's showing everybody his source. Oh, my
1: God. huh.
0: I, mean, I guess people get the vaccine because this itches like crazy. You don't want this.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, they they expanded it. It's funny because it's sort of like, hey, let's have a little uh, a little slutty get together here for everyone who's now eligible for the vaccine, because now it's anyone who has had multiple sexual partners during the past two weeks. Uh, is now eligible for the vaccine. And they have also been tinkering around because they still don't have enough vaccines. Right. Right. So they have been tinkering with how they are administering the shots they have. Uh, and they are now going to they're going to administer it, you know, instead of beneath the skin, between layers of skin, which allows them to use less vaccine oh. so they can get these first shots to more people. And supposedly it's still effective. Oh. FDAs. Is- authorize this for emergency use uh still apparently no word on when these second shots are going to be available but i because i have been in lockdown i am not going to be eligible uh sadly <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> right. under other circumstances wouldn't it wouldn't it be a little bit of a disappointment if you're a single person to be like oh man oh yes I, 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 I need to get out a little more <laughs>
0: Um, Moderna said over the weekend that the UK had given them emergency authorization to, uh, release a new, uh, COVID booster that is effective against both original COVID and, um, the Omicron, uh, variant. Mm Uh, we, we should expect to see it in the United States for those people, uh, interested in getting another booster, uh, Mm -hmm. sometime in the next several weeks. Fun. Yeah, that's what we need—more boosters. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's anything else in the immediate headlines. Uh, we've got a terrific show today. We have Jeremy Kuzmarov, who's always excellent on these foreign policy issues. We have Saber Nasri, who I don't think we've had on the show yet, but who is an expert on Afghanistan, and he's going to give us some insights there. The always wonderful Dan Kovalik and the equally wonderful Ariel Gold. It's going to be a foreign policy heavy show today, but there's a lot going on. So stay tuned. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witty. The Western media this weekend was full of reporting on Russia jeopardizing the safety of the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. What the likes of The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal didn't say, though, was that it was Ukraine that was firing rockets at the Russian positions near the plant. These same media outlets also offered up extensive reporting on how Russia is, quote, losing the war, unquote, without offering any evidence. And in the meantime, former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger known also as the Butcher of Cyprus and the Butcher of Chile, told the Wall Street Journal that the U.S. is on the brink of war with both Russia and China. And just days after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi exacerbated tensions with China by traveling to Taiwan, another congressional delegation is on the island. We're joined by Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks again for having me. Jeremy, let's start with the status of fighting between Russia and Ukraine. The Ukrainians are apparently attacking Russian positions in Crimea while fighting in Donbass. I asked some of our guests last week why the Russians would or sorry, the Ukrainians would do this. And I, I want to ask you the same question. What's the what's the Ukrainian strategy here? Is it even possible for them to fight a two-front war against the Russians in both Donbass and Crimea? Uh,
2: my sense is that it's kind of, you know, delusions of grandeur that they become you know, uh, uh, overconfident because of all the weaponry that the U.S. and right. West is providing them. And, you know, they think they could, uh, you know, they're kind of godlike feeling. Uh, and I mean, Zelensky, I mean, it's almost human psychology. If you were in his position, you would probably feel like a God the way he'd been treated. Uh, so he thinks uh, he can do anything. and I mean, he's not probably attuned to the situation on the ground the 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 terrible suffering and the uh, shifts you know in morale, you know the poor morale of the Ukrainian army. Uh, you know, I don't think he's attuned to that. And a lot of you know, presidents are war commanders. We've seen that throughout history, mm. including the most famous case of you know, Hitler was completely deluded and thought he was winning uh, and was just totally uh, detached from reality. And how his forces were ultimately ground, gr- grinded down and decimated by the Russian army. And I mean, I wouldn't underestimate the Russians' you know, military capability. I mean, they're they're fighting basically you know near their own home turf. And uh, they, you know, slowly, I think they're succeeding in achieving a lot of their goals uh, in the war.
0: We saw reporting here in the uh, U.S. over the weekend, Jeremy, saying that the Russians have taken as many as 80,000 casualties and that this is unsustainable. Is there any truth, do you think, to these numbers? And what about the sustainability of Ukrainian casualties? We don't hear anything. Like, literally, we hear nothing in the U.S. press about Ukrainian casualties.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the reporting is very biased, so you have to—I uh, mean, every figure has to be held with a grain of salt. I'm not sure if that's the right figure, but, I mean, Russia is a much larger country than Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine, firstly, seems to be suffering from hyperinflation right now and serious economic problems. Uh, that make, you know, make this war, uh, I think, insoluble over the long term. And it's a much smaller country with much less, uh, re- you know, much less reserve to draw on than the Russians. Yeah. I mean, the Russians haven't even instituted a draft. So
0: ah, that was a, a follow up question I had for you, because it seems if they were if they were seeing these devastating losses, the first thing they would do is to institute a draft or at least to institute registration for a draft. Would it not be?
2: Correct. Yeah. And we're not seeing that. So, I mean, I think the Russians are okay with this, you know, grinding it out and, and achieving their goals uh, over the long term. I think they're confident. And uh, unfortunately, they are sustaining, it seems, heavy losses, but they could withstand that for the time being much better than Ukraine. Yeah, that would be my assumption as well.
0: Um, I was very interested to hear Henry Kissinger's take on Foreign policy over the weekend. I am not at all a Henry Kissinger fan. I know you are not uh, either. But it was Kissinger who had the the presence of mind in the ni- in the 1970s to to recommend to Richard Nixon that they negotiate a diplomatic relationship with the Chinese, as well as to shepherd a closer relationship with uh, the Soviet Union. He says that we're headed for disaster. Do you think it's too late to turn things around. Are we really heading for war with with Russia and or China?
2: Well, uh, one thing I would I would remind uh, listeners is that you know Kissinger was a part of the more moderate wing of the Republican Party. You know the Nixon Rockefeller wing, mm-hmm. and many see Watergate as a coup driven by the uh, neoconservatives who ousted Nixon and Kissinger, and then ousted Carter. And ushered in the Reagan Revolution and got the neoconservatives, who are much more hawkish yes. uh, and, and kind of reckless, uh, who've been really in power uh, since the 80s. And uh, you know, the a lot of the neoconservatives shifted in the Trump years, or even before, shifted to the Democratic Party. Uh, so it's not too much of a surprise to see Biden. Pursuing a neoconservative strategy of provoking war with Russia and China, and I think they've gone very far. Yeah, with the you know Pelosi Taiwan visit and the, the strategy where they're really beefing up Taiwan through massive arms sales and training their military and provocative, you know, sending uh, uh, ships in, in in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits. I mean, they've really gone far to provoke the Chinese. Uh so at this point, you know, I don't know, this is heading in a very dangerous direction. I saw a political button uh
0: yesterday on eBay for sale. It was a Nixon for Governor button from 1962 and it said Nixon for Governor, Progressive Leadership for California. And I m- my first reaction was to to laugh. And then I thought, "No, you know what? Back then Richard Nixon was progressive for the Republican Party uh you know on on some social issues of course he he moved to the right in 1968 to win over the the southern uh conservative vote but uh this is not the republican party of of richard nixon and it's certainly not the democratic party of of even john kennedy uh w- we're seeing for example, this delegation that just arrived in in Taiwan. It's led by Senator Ed Markey, who's supposed to be one of the most progressive members of the U.S. Senate. It's all Democrats except one junior Republican. This is the the Democrats on Capitol Hill that are forcing these hawkish uh, foreign policy issues vis-a-vis China and and Russia. Uh, and, and another thing, I'd love your comment on this. Uh, you know, we we go through these cycles where we'll have truly inspirational secretaries of, of state. And then we'll have some duds. And it seems to me that Tony Blinken's a dud. And many of us had, had predicted this because Blinken owes literally his entire adult career uh, to Joe Biden. He's always, always worked for, for Joe Biden. And um, he was, in my view, he was intellectually ill-equipped To be Secretary of State. He's just simply in over his head. Now, here we are on the brink of war with both Russia and China. Uh, We're trying to pull the rest of the world along with us. And there's no indication at all of any uh, diplomatic uh, uh, breakthrough uh, on the horizon, even diplomatic conversations, uh, either between the Russians and the Ukrainians, or the Russians and the Americans, or the Chinese and the Americans. Where do we go from here? We can't afford for things to get much worse.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, in two point, yeah, with the Democratic Party, yeah, again, I, I think a lot of the neoconservatives migrated to the Democratic Party. And yeah, we really need urgently, uh, you know, a group like in the 60s, you had the Students for Democratic Society right. that were, were, you know, young liberals who saw the, the double standards and uh, tied with, you know, large corporation and military industrial complex of the mainstream Democratic Party. And they revolted, and that's what we need today uh, as a a practical necessity, yeah, because we're discussing is a very dangerous policy they're pursuing. And, yeah, as far as Blinken, yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be the nation's top diplomat, but he's the, as you point out, the antithesis of a diplomat. Mm -hmm. He never says anything, uh, and he even embarrasses and insults uh, the people. You know, he's in a diplomatic setting, like his trip to Alaska, with mm-hmm. uh, a foreign policy debacle. Uh, so, I mean, he's like the antithesis of a diplomat. And it's just a, a very, uh, unfortunately, a yeah, low standard of, of leadership. You know, as you say, yeah, in the past, we've had good personalities uh, in that position, even if they haven't always pursued the right policies. Right. Uh, they made efforts at diplomacy. Uh, there was outreach. There was friendliness. Uh, and that mitigated the uh, disaster. I mean, the 80s, you know, I, I'm not a fan of Reagan's uh, conservative policy, but there were diplomatic efforts in that era that yielded fruit, with the INF treaty and, right. uh, and other arms control treaty. So, I mean, that was Reagan, as opposed to hardliner, and he had, you know, George Shultz. I mean, was oh. a much better ambassador. You, you took for the, the US words and Blinken. Yeah, you took yeah. the words
0: right out of my mouth. You look at you look at Ronald Reagan, who was who who was this godlike figure to many Republicans. And as conservative as he was, uh, he was the one that sent out special envoys, for example, to defuse the Lebanon War and evacuated thousands of Palestinian fighters to Tunisia to save their lives from Israeli bombardment. It was Reagan that met repeatedly with Gorbachev to try to negotiate arms deals. It was Reagan that reached out to the Chinese. There's been this role reversal.
2: Yeah. I mean, and Kissinger is another example. I mean, yeah, he did some very terrible thing, but with China, I mean, he was there and I mean, Nixon was pursuing diploma, you know, great power, uh, rapprochement, mm-hmm. and there were these, you know, international meetings and, and friendliness between leaders and, and deals that were, were brokered. So yeah, we're seeing just the opposite of that. And yeah. just repeated denunciation and insult and nothing positive, you know, insulting these great countries and civilizations, which, again, we didn't have statesmen doing that in the past. The Schultzes, the Kissingers, at least, were very respectful toward the, the history and culture That's right. of the peoples.
0: Jeremy, a congressional delegation, as I said a second ago, led by Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, is in Taiwan today. This comes on the heels of Nancy Pelosi's visit there last week. The Chinese response has been to continue what the at least the U.S. press is calling uh, very provocative military drills in the area. What is the U.S. strategy here? Why are U.S. officials trying to provoke the Chinese? What do you think the the end game is diplomatically?
2: Uh, well, I, I've had a bit of a hard time understanding myself, given the interdependence of the U.S. and Chinese economy. Uh, given right. that China buys a Treasury bond that finances the U.S. debt, uh, and given the strength, the military and technological strength of China, this seems to be a kind of suicide mission. Uh, I think it's it's really just uh, because the U.S. can't accept a rival to its power. It wants to be the dominant force around the world, and become you know quite arrogant in the last 20 to 30 years, and, and can't accept any challenge. And you know China has in some way bested the U.S. economically uh, in recent years or decades, and you know is is kind of in some ways trying to show up the U.S. with the One Belt One Road initiative. So the U.S. is kind of jealous. And they're just behaving like, like ch- a spoiled child with, with too much uh, hardware at their disposal. Mm-hmm. And this could, could be very dangerous, you know, if, if it provokes a war. I mean, no, there'll be no winners of this war. I mean, each country has right. uh, tremendous you know, military capability of destroying the others. I would agree.
0: The European Union is considering banning everything Russian from its member states. This would include disallowing Russian citizens from even traveling. To the European Union, it would seriously hurt the economies of Greece, Cyprus and Italy, where thousands of Russians vacation every year. Would such a decision, do you think, have any effect on Russian decision making in the Ukraine war? That would be the goal. Ban all Russians to force the Russians to end the Ukraine war. You see it even working out that way?
2: I don't, yeah. And firstly, that's, I mean, a tragedy. I mean, Russia has historically, in a way, been part of Europe. Uh, and I mean, the peoples have often got along very well on all levels of of exchange. So it's really sad to see uh, this effort to isolate and ostracize Russia and even ban Russians. And as far as where this will lead, no, because you have to look at, uh, you know, how did this war start? I mean, really, Russia didn't start the war. I I think there's a false narrative promoted in, the, in Europe and the United States about how the war started. And Putin is singularly blamed when the war really started, you know, eight years ago when the U.S. and the EU were behind this coup and the Ukrainian military, uh, you know, the, the, it was Ukraine that sabotaged the Minsk peace accords mm-hmm. and that attacked eastern Ukraine when they voted not for secession, but they wanted autonomy, uh, which Russia agreed to under the Minsk agreements. So Ukraine attacked them, and, and the U.S. was funding uh, Ukraine and pumping all this weaponry. Uh, and then, you know, further provocations ultimately led. Uh, I mean, the Russian would see their action as defensive, trying to defend the people of eastern Ukraine who were under attack. I don't necessarily agree with the phrasing of genocide, but the Ukrainian military was committing ample, a huge number of atrocities and terrorizing the people of eastern Ukraine, and U.N. investigations found 80 percent of the shellings were carried out by the Ukrainian army. So Russia sees its action as defensive to come to the aid of the people of eastern Ukraine and in the face of those provocation by Ukraine and also the, the issue of NATO expansion into into Ukraine. So uh, I don't see how any of these policies, from sanctions to efforts to stigmatize or isolate or ban Russia, will have any impact. And Russia seems to be achieving some of its goals and, and may be able, uh, you know, capturing territory. They're having referendum soon, uh, incorporating new territory, which will strengthen the Russian economy and is probably welcome in those parts of eastern Ukraine where the population is, is ethnic Russian majority and leans more to Russia compared to western Ukraine. So, uh, you yeah, know, I don't see any impact this will have. It's just a, a, a tragedy that, uh, you know, again, Russians and Europeans had a close uh, Relationship for years. I mean, they cooperated to defeat the Nazis in World War II. That's right. Uh, And again, the Russian people have always been, you know, viewed warmly in Europe. This is sad to see them being uh, mistreated at this time.
0: Yeah, I would have to agree. Congress is preparing to send another one billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine. This is going to include more advanced missiles, weapons, ammunition, and drones. Is is this just the plan? In perpetuity, is, is it to force the Russians to the negotiating table or is it meant to force a Russian defeat?
2: Uh, my view all along was that uh, from the beginning was that the US strategy was to kind of give the Russians, you know, Vietnam type quagmire, an Afghan type yeah. quag- quagmire, and that would weaken the Russian economy and that would uh, provoke civil unrest in Russia and facilitate regime change. Because yeah, Putin as uh, you know the bête noire uh, or the devil of the day because he stood up for Russia after you know in the '90s. Uh, you had Boris Yeltsin and who was you know kind of weak leader and acquiesced to Western designs for Russia, and Putin stood up more for Russian interest and stood up to the oligarchs and the uh, Western you know, corporate uh, plunder and uh, restored Russia's economy more for Russians. So. They want to get rid of him, and and this is a way to do it. And it's really Machiavellian, and it's uh, you know provoked a terrible human tragedy. And there there should be more opposition to these huge bills. I mean, the uh, you know figure like Bernie Sanders, who are progressive on a lot of issues, have been nowhere on, on this issue. They they he's just voted for these aid appropriation. I think the squad, you know, all the Democrats, even the progressive Democrats. So I mean, there should be a grassroots protest movement, like uh, you know, the Students for Democratic Society, as I was mentioning, right. emerged in the '60s to challenge these corporate militarist Democrats like Hubert Humphrey, and you know, now it's Biden, Clinton, and unfortunately also o. Sanders, and they need to be challenged. That's the only way they'll be changed is if a grassroots protest movement emerges. But unfortunately, the media uh, learned from Vietnam to control the message. And they've blocked really the information from getting out. All, all, you know, there are tons of, of uh, reporters who've been in Donbass and they, you know, been reporting about the horrific crimes that the Ukraine has committed, and, and you know, trying to give a more balanced view. And they've been censored and blacklisted and demonized. And very few people I talk to really have a good understanding, including people who are generally well informed on politics or identify with the liberal camp or been involved in anti-war activism, a lot of them subscribe to dominant russophobia and don't have a good understanding of the war. So the first step is better public consciousness. Mm -hmm. The next step would be a progressive movement to challenge uh, a misguided and and bankrupt policy of of providing billions in U.S. taxpayer taxpayer dollars into a sinkhole, because this is another Afghanistan. This is the most corrupt government, one of the most corrupt governments in Europe, if not the world. And the U.S. has many problems at home and need for spending on things like education, infrastructure, and yet there are billions of dollars going into this sinkhole that's just prolonging the war. And this should be challenged at the grassroots.
0: Indeed. That was the voice of Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He is managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we, like a lot of other news organizations, are uh, taking a look back now with a year's worth of hindsight on uh, the U.S.'s really chaotic and uh, deadly withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, trying to understand what lessons we should learn from both that 20-year war and the way we exited it. Joining us for this conversation is Saber Nasseri. He's president of the Afghanistan America Relations Office, and he's a representative of Afghan refugees in the United States. Saber, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome.
1: Good afternoon. So, Saber, over the weekend, different media outlets began marking the anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, On this day a year ago, the Taliban took over the Afghan capital, and the U.S. and our allies spent the next two weeks implementing a chaotic and deadly evacuation that saw people fall from planes they were attempting to grab onto as they lifted off. It saw people killed in a suicide attack on Kabul airport. Families were separated. 6,500 Afghans are still a year later stuck in limbo in a refugee camp in the United Arab Emirates waiting for resettlement. And of course, in Afghanistan— People are facing a winter of possible famine, and protests organized by women demanding the right to work and to participate in political activities are, you know, broken up and beaten by Taliban authorities. The U.S. also bookended this year with drone strikes, right? Uh, During the withdrawal, we took one last botched uh, drone strike that killed a civilian aid worker and nine others, including many children, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, We had the kind of clean, direct strike that gets celebrated. But even this strike that supposedly was so surgical and so precise, I think, uh, could result in mass civilian casualties, as the presence of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was killed in that strike, has apparently caused the Biden administration to break off talks with the Taliban and decide not to release any of the $7 billion in Afghan assets it has frozen. Uh, So that's where I want to start. Right. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the White House suspended talks with Taliban banking officials and ruled out using these frozen funds for aid or other operations to stabilize the Afghan economy after previously suggesting that maybe they would let some of this money go. The White House is saying they are worried the money would be used to fund terrorism. And so to start there, how should we understand this news just from today? Do you think the U.S. was ever going to release that money, or have they just got a good excuse now to hold on to it?
3: Thank you very much. Uh, That's a long question and long statement. uh, You're right. You're 100 percent right. Uh, Number one, uh, the people of Afghanistan did not uh, celebrate uh, the uh, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The, the people who celebrate the uh, U.S. withdrawal are only the Taliban, only the Taliban tribe, only the Taliban undertable supporter. And, and that's number one. And number mm-hmm. two, American allies that you mentioned are still remain in Abu Dhabi and uh, more than 6,000 uh, uh, refugees. Uh, of course, the uh, women. They are beating by Taliban, they are kidnapping by Taliban, and they are forced marrying by Taliban. Even the Taliban, they have four or five wives. They mm-hmm. get the free wife, from, uh, especially from north of Afghanistan. And, uh, but the, the, the women, they are fighting for their freedom, their, mm-hmm. their rights. They still protest in Afghanistan. Nobody is hearing and supporting them. Mm-hmm. And also uh, the, the women and the people of Afghanistan who are uh, supporting the uh, Northern Lion uh, people, who are the, supporting the, the resistance front. The resistance front is only the team that's uh, taking, taking revenge of the United mm-hmm. States and uh, not letting Taliban to kill and to uh, get Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Normally, Afghanistan or Kabul, uh, I was aware of it. My family was um, in Afghanistan. So luckily, I uh, I um, uh, <clears throat> brought them from Afghanistan by, um, by our uh, link, our support. I didn't, didn't help my family, but actually, I did my all support. And moving by congressman support and other uh, retired uh, military forces that they were working with me in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Taliban he got Afghanistan. The Taliban only got Kabul and Afghanistan government because the Afghanistan president, as we mentioned many times, was briber, table briber, was racist. And he mm-hmm. was the, 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 uh, let me tell, uh, say one of the, 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 the book writers of Afghanistan stated, if I was a manager, I will never hire a former president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, has a, has a dishwasher. Mm-hmm. He was, was absolutely right. And mm-hmm. number three, America did the best masterpiece here. Uh, to kill Al-Qaeda uh, leader or Al-Qaeda deputy or Osama Bin Laden's assistant. He was a mm-hmm. doctor. He was uh, a terrorist, and uh, thank God that America sent them to the hell. And mm-hmm. the Taliban are killed by Al-Qaeda people, and uh, the Al-Qaeda are of A mm-hmm. side I groups in Afghanistan, which is I was captured in Afghanistan I lost my fingers in, uh, uh, lost in uh, lost my fingers in Afghanistan I know Afghanistan and Pakistan better because that's my my field mm-hmm. I was a subject matter expert of Afghanistan and middle eastern countries so uh, as I mentioned seven years ago that uh, i are things in in Afghanistan the number one al qaeda number. Taliban from Pakistan and the Taliban from Afghanistan. These, these Taliban right now they're not with each other. Taliban, mm-hmm. from Taliban, and from Afghanistan are good. Al Qaeda Taliban are not the Taliban, all is tourists. Saber
1: but, can I interrupt you? I, I wanna ask a question. Um, because there's there's a lot of discussion about one how to how to help the people of Afghanistan without supporting the Taliban and what should be done with this money. And I want to ask you, you know, uh, you have this Washington Post editorial saying that the US's top priority should be to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a base of terrorist attacks. And so the way to do that is to continue to withhold this money that we've frozen. Do you think that makes any sense? Do do you think that we can, on one hand, try to help the people of Afghanistan while not in any way supporting the Taliban government? Is that even possible? And if it's not, you know, do we watch people starve because we want to isolate the Taliban government or should we work with the Taliban if we have to because we want to take care of these people whose country we were in for 20 years?
3: Number one, the Taliban doesn't have a government. They are mm-hmm. not uh, established a government yet. And number two, <clears throat> that's better that we can close the money, not release the money to the Taliban government. That's enough that the United States uh, released their weapon, ammunition, money, and everything for the Taliban, which is not supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. I lost, or many many soldiers, six thousand soldiers lost their body for mm-hmm. the freedom and constitution of the United States. I lost fingers for constitution of the United States. If I knew that that one day the United States or Biden will will give the ta- uh, government of Afghanistan to the Taliban, I will never lose my fingers. Even each finger or, you know, that's my price. Mm-hmm. One million dollars for me. Five million dollars I sacrificed for the United States. If I knew, I will never do it. But it's better to pose that money in the bank until Afghanistan have a good government, a legal government. We don't mm-hmm. have any government. If you if the United States release seven billion thousand dollars seven billion dollars to the Taliban, mm-hmm. I'm hundred percent sure half of them will go to the Pakistan ISI and half will remain to Afghanistan and they will be they are against us. They are against United States. They will be more dangerous. Right now mm-hmm. Taliban was a cat or like a dog in Afghanistan. When the, when the United States released all their ammunition and weapons, they became a tiger. And if you release the $7 billion Taliban, uh, they will be a lion. It's very dangerous for us. You know, the first day the Taliban got Afghanistan, the second day, the Russian, they fight to attack on Spain. The first day, second week can they be decide and the next mm. week the attack on Ukraine. why? because they feel that okay, the United States left from Afghanistan and we can do whatever we want. Russia can do anything, China can do anything Pakistan, mm. Iran, whatever country you are they will it's very dangerous to the United States it's better, it's better. He has Americans. For American military forces, so the new uh, uh, president can go back to Afghanistan and stay there. We, we uh, people of Afghanistan, they are begging Americans right now, begging Americans come back, they stay here. We will feed you. We will feed our food, our children' food. We can give it to you. We don't need anything from you. Just stay here because we mm-hmm. need you. You are people to take the human rights in Afghanistan, nobody else.
1: What, you, what would you suggest if the U.S. does, you know, if, if you're advocating for the U.S. to go back to Afghanistan, what what would you suggest that the United States do differently so we don't have the same repeat of the last 20 years where it seems like after after 20 years of being involved in Afghanistan and fighting there and seeing many people injured like yourself and, and killed? Uh the, the well, have, Afghan people are left with with no gain. So what if if people are going to go, if, you, if the U.S. should go back to Afghanistan, what should we do differently?
3: Thank you very much. You're very smart. This is the right question. Mr. Colin Powell, thank God, he you know, um, um, uh, he was a great man. But uh, unfortunately, we lost him. He asked me the same question and I, I I gave him a good answer for him for for him. But, uh, um, uh, ma'am, uh, I'm asking the, uh, the people of the uh, United States, and I'm asking the government of the uh, United States. Since uh, 2001, uh, when I was an English teacher, I was asking them that you decide the, uh, to support the wrong people in Afghanistan. The right people are different. The majority of people of Afghanistan want uh, restored justice. Mm-hmm. The government of Afghanistan, which is the Karzai, uh, Ashraf Ghani, uh, the people of Afghanistan even didn't like them, they want peace. People of Afghanistan don't want peace right now. They want restored justice. So the differently is, you go to uh, Afghanistan, you have to support the people of Afghanistan, not the Taliban people, not the Taliban supporters, and not the government of Afghanistan. The people want something else. So, for example, the Northern Lion people, Northern residents, they were Mujahideen before. They beat Russia. They beat United Kingdom. They beat many countries that they tried to invade Afghanistan. But the people of Afghanistan say, we want to select our own people. But mm-hmm. the government of Afghanistan have Jirga. Jirga means a big meeting mm-hmm. for uh, Afghan diplomats and Afghan representatives. And they are bribers. they take their own, you know, they take money, they select the wrong people, they, then it's, a, it's a game. So mm-hmm. the best thing, if the United States want to go back to Afghanistan, support and listen to the people of Afghanistan, support and listen to the representative of uh, people in Afghanistan, not mm-hmm. uh, two, three people. Ash was one, and there was two, three, like Moheb and other other people they were, they were just a, a, a contractor over there. That's why they left Afghanistan. But the people of Afghanistan is still fighting, is still remain in Afghanistan, is still fighting for the United States, Northern Lions, or the women that they are fighting right now. So the difference is, uh, let's go back, let's listen to the people of Afghanistan, let's support people of Afghanistan, not, uh, not the, the people who are... Uh, supporter of Taliban, we have—I'm uh, not supposed to mention here in the radio that's that secret, but I have to tell there is uh, many tribes in Afghanistan. One, Tajik, who speaks Parsi. There is another tribe we call Pashtun, who speak Pashto. And we have Hazara, and we have Uzbek, and many more, mark and others. But we, we as Americans, only went to Afghanistan and support Pashtun, Mm-hmm. which is they are the supporter of Taliban. They are the supporter of uh, terrorists. We didn't listen. We didn't support Tajik people who speak Farsi, who have mm-hmm. 5,000 years background in Afghanistan. Pashtun mm-hmm. has 200 years. And Pashtun uh, tribes, uh, they. I'm none of those. I'm not Pashtun. I'm not Tajik. I'm not none of those tribes. But I'm honest, and I want to be honest here right now. Mm-hmm. The yeah. they lied to America for forty-two years. They said we are majority people of Afghanistan. They are not. They are not majority. They are minority. Majority people of Afghanistan are Tajik, which is Tajik Hazara. Who's back? They are one hand. They are one team. Mm-hmm.
1: Are you got to think one. over a couple decades. So it's 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 eventually. The occupier's responsibility to learn when they have been led astray. Saber, I want to ask you before we run out of time. You know, with with a year's hindsight, right? Looking back, what, what, why do you think the withdrawal was as messy and disastrous as it was? Do you was it an intelligence failure? Was it what? What happened? Why was that two weeks such chaos?
3: I was aware of it. So uh, let's say this: Uh, when the Taliban came to Afghanistan, this is something that is not on the news. for you radio, people of America want to listen. Even diplomats need to listen this right now. The, the, when the Taliban came to Afghanistan <coughs> uh, peacefully, and then the first thing, he released uh, uh, 4,600 jailers from Policharfi Jail. Those jailers was the terrorists and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the al-Qaeda uh, members uh, and al-Qaeda supporters. And majority of Taliban supporters that they were living in villages, they live in Pakistan, they le- they were in the jail, they released the security we call OGA, security uh, OGA 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It has different teams. Uh, they enter, they released, they got money, they sent a lot of their tribes, a lot of their jailers, a lot of their Taliban supporters from outside the airport to inside the airport. Mm-hmm. Majority, I'm, I'm telling the truth here right now. FDI need to listen right now. The majority people that they enter to United States, more than 200,000 people, they are majority of them. They are supporter of Taliban. They are supporter of uh, terrorists in Afghanistan. They are not terrorists, but they are supporter of terrorists. They're their own tribe. They, some of them, they released from the jail. They came here. They, they, they it's in, the, in the system in the mm-hmm. system of Afghanistan. And, and, and the Pakistan, the Taliban uh, families that they are, uh, they left in Pakistan. They came to Kabul, and from Kabul they sent them into the airport by by security. Uh, we call OGA, we call uh, Security Zero One Zero Two Zero Zero Four. The American allies left behind. They, they said, what, what the hell is this? We are still, they mm-hmm. cannot go inside the airport because the Taliban uh, tried to do by metric and tried to mm-hmm. re- uh, re- recognize them. They hide mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. They Then, uh, after uh, four or five weeks, they move from Pakistan, from Afghanistan to Pakistan. They moved from Afghanistan to Tajikistan. They moved to mm-hmm. Iran. They hide themselves, and they have a very bad situation right now.
1: Saber Nasseri, I'm going to have to stop you there. We're running out of time. But certainly, I mean, it was a very chaotic exit. And you have, as we said, thousands of people still waiting in the UAE to be processed to come into the U.S. Maybe this is part of why that's been taking so long. That was Saber Nasseri. He's president of the Afghanistan America Relations Office. Thanks so much for talking to us, Saber. We are going to take a quick break here now on Political Misfits and come back with a little more, little more domestic news, a little more media news. There's a lot coming up. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here with John Kiriakou, and we've got more news to get through from the weekend and from today. We are, of course, going to continue to talk about the fallout from the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid. We will talk about what Twitter is doing to prevent readers from encountering unsafe information, whatever that means. We will talk about a new lawsuit against the CIA by people associated with Julian Assange, who say the CIA and Spanish security firm UC Global violated their civil rights by searching them uh, in, in great uh, with great thoroughness every time they went to visit Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy. We are going to talk about the context that the U.S. labor movement finds itself in. There's a whole lot going on. Joining us for all of it is Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney, a human rights activist, and an author. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks
4: for having me.
1: I wanna start with the gray zone, just because it's fun to do a little bit of media criticism on Monday. Um, Twitter is once again trying to protect its users from the reporting of the gray zone, which it is, importantly, not accusing of spreading lies, but of reporting information that could, quote, cause real-world harm, because it is uh, misleading. So, the latest warning label got slapped on a story Gray Zone republished from The Defender that details some of the security and intelligence links of top editors at some popular sources of information, including The Daily Beast and beloved Rolling Stone. Also, in the story are connections between these figures uh, and people working at the CDC and DARPA. So, it is really a toss up whether Twitter decided it is too dangerous for people to read about the cozy relationship between media intelligence. And intelligence, or whether it is too dangerous to read about DARPA um, funding vaccine technology, right? Throw those up, throw a dart at them, see which one you hit. I want to get into, you know, just how we should take on board this kind of reporting anyway, right? That sort of aims to sketch out the networks that various influential people operate in. But I want to ask first, you know, what what should we make of a label by a huge social media company that says? This information might be unsafe for you to consume rather than this information isn't true, right? Who is to say what is safe or unsafe, Dan?
4: Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, I think obviously people should be able to make their own minds up about that. Once you tell them it's unsafe, you're really saying, you know, it's unworthy of them to even, you know, consider or look at. And certainly in the case of gray zone, which I've, you know, been consuming for many years and respect a lot, I would say that, you know, it never approaches anything like that. You know, they have criticisms of certainly U.S. foreign policy and of, of late have become very critical of. um um, you know, the vaccine industry, which I think there's a lot of things to speak about it, obviously. And so wh- how is that dangerous to even think about that? How how are thoughts dangerous? I mean, this is a way to really censor uh, organizations and make them foreboding.
1: Without ever explicitly saying no, this isn't true, right? This isn't true. This isn't journalism. This is a lie because they never are saying that because it never it isn't a lie, right? They've just decided right. uh, the the context we live in now makes it dangerous for you to consider these possibilities, and that I think is really really bleak. The other question is more of a general one, and it's one that I raised recently with John. But you know, um. This, this story is mostly about how uh, it's about the intelligence insider status carefully cultivated by some influential editors-in-chief of uh, these magazines. The Daily Beast gets a mention, uh, R- Rolling Stone, but also in there is Wired. Um, and I'm blanking on the others, but there are a couple of their sort of household names. I think Foreign Policy Magazine. And it's about, again, the the way that these people have Uh, cultivated their own direct ties with these industries. But it's also about, you know, who's childhood friends with who and who's uh, what job does this person's wife do and who is John Negroponte's brother funding? And it's the kind of reporting where on one hand you think, uh, is it fair to visit the sins of the fathers on their children? And on the other, if you are trying to document something as nebulous as, you know, editorial influence. The the ecosystem that you move in, the people who are your close um, partners and friends and influences, of course, it matters. And so, I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, how how do we take this on board? How how useful is this? Are there limits to it? You know, when when you are trying to get to something as pervasive as, uh, you know, the the creating the kind of atmosphere like we have on Twitter, where you're not going to say something's untrue, you're just going to say it's unsafe. How do we? How does this reporting sort of fit into this this picture? Yeah, well, I think,
4: you know, it is important to know people's connections. We know that people are influenced by who they're related to, to who they receive funding from. Um, that's always going to be relevant, as you say, not determinative. It may, you know, the fact that I have a brother you know, who's a Trump supporter doesn't make me a Trump supporter. Um, You know, but it could be relevant. And again, I think it's up to the reader to assess the facts that are given them and make the conclusion for themselves how important it is that someone has a certain connection or gets funding from a certain source.
0: I want to ask you if I could could change the subject just a little bit. I I have to ask you about what we saw this past week at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, you know, admitting my own biases here, Dan, I looked, uh, I looked everywhere for a hook by which I could criticize the FBI on Monday, right? A week ago today. Uh, I hate the FBI. The FBI hates me. Uh, I take a swipe whenever I'm able to take a swipe in my op-eds. But as the week went on, and we saw that the FBI went by the, the book, they, uh, they filled out the forms that they needed to fill out, they got the warrant, they used a supporting affidavit. And then we saw what Donald Trump is accused of having kept at Mar-a-La- Mar-a-Lago. Uh, by Friday, it was just dramatic to me. We're not talking even about the kind of information that Julian Assange is accused of having released, or Chelsea Manning was accused of having released diplomatic cable traffic that, you know, may have been somewhat embarrassing, but really didn't cause any harm to the national security. Donald Trump is being accused of having taken code word documents, nuclear documents special access program documents. These are the most highly classified documents that exist in the federal government. Where do you think we go from here? Do you think the Biden administration is serious about prosecuting Donald Trump? Because if they
4: are, he'll likely die in prison uh, with charges like this. Well, it's a good question. I mean, in many ways, this is unprecedented because In fact, I saw a meme with Richard Nixon's photo on it, and he said not even, you know, they didn't even invade, FBI didn't even invade my home, you know. (laughs) Um, Right. I mean, to go after a former president who still has, you know, a significant amount of support. Oh, yeah. And again, anything we're talking about in terms of a former president has to be looked at as a political issue, right? Mm -hmm. To actually try to prosecute him. Um, would be d- politically dangerous for Biden because he will mobilize the Republican base that supports Trump, mm-hmm. and he probably has already with this uh, you know, FBI operation in in Trump's home. Um, so I tend to doubt that he's going to prosecute. I think the goal here isn't so much to put. Trump in jail. It's to disqualify him to run again. And Mm -hmm. I think they are going to try to do that. And maybe they try to prosecute him and they get a plea deal that includes him agreeing never to run for office. again. Maybe that's the gambit.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly what the goal is. The goal is to disqualify him from running for president, which they can do with an indictment. He doesn't have to be convicted of anything. They can just indict him and disqualify him and then have Biden pardon him in the waning days of, you know, a Biden administration.
1: But doesn't this play into the hands of the people, his supporters who would say this is 100 percent politically motivated? Oh, absolutely. If, as you say, you, you, you know, you do this, uh, you have this raid on Mar-a-Lago uh, which, again, didn't even happen to Richard Nixon. Uh, no, no actual prosecutions come from it. And everyone agrees it's just to prevent this person who does still have quite a bit of support in the Republican Party from from running again. You know, I mean, one, what message does that send other than we don't actually care what crimes you commit? You know, we only care to keep you in or out of our political system. Yeah. Yeah, well, again, I think
4: anything like this is going to be dangerous for them. At the same time, they're going to, you know, they're going to balance that against the concern that if Trump is able to win again, he may be able to win, you know, um, whether they go after him or not. I don't know if that's true. I think. We'll look at the midterms and see what happens. It'll probably be somewhat determinative or at least point to what might happen in 2024, not only whether the Republicans gain a lot, but whether people like, uh, you know, Liz Cheney survive, Um, you know, so there's a lot to think about there.
1: I mean, it does just seem like we've had We've had so many investigations into Donald Trump and notwithstanding the two that are happening in, in um, Manhattan in the Southern District of New York, which might come to something. But, you know, we had Gate. We had Ukraine gate. We had these two impeachments. Now we have this, uh, this, uh, FBI raid, the search for, for, uh, secret documents that he shouldn't have, uh, held on to. And it just seems like, again, it sends over and over the message that if we like you, you can do whatever you, I mean, I'm not saying this is necessarily true. And right? I think the comparisons to Obama are, are ridiculous. I think Trump was an extraordinarily sloppy, bad president, mm-hmm. but it really does send the message that we don't actually want to prosecute anyone at this level, Right. We don't want it. We don't have any intention of doing that, whether we even ever had enough evidence to to do that. All we want to do is regulate who is in this political system. And that seems dangerous on multiple levels. It seems dangerous because it feeds his supporters idea that this is purely a political prosecution and that there's nothing to it. And it also seems to really support this idea that Actually, once you get to a certain level, whoever you are, including Donald Trump, you can do whatever you want yeah. and face no consequences yeah. other than, you know, sort of a uh, lawfare type harassment.
4: Agreed. Well, yes. Although, you know, what I would say, you know, is that every U.S. president, including Obama, uh, could easily be prosecuted for war crimes. Sure. Um and other serious crimes of that nature. Um, George W. Bush could have maybe been prosecuted for, you know, not only taking us into the war, but, you know, doing it based on lies. You know, that could even be considered almost treasonous, right? I mean, the fact is they're all pregnant in some ways. Um, And generally, for example, Obama was, you know, there was a push by some, liberals, uh, saying, oh, you should prosecute Cheney and Bush for war crimes. And, um, and he made the decision not to, because I think he felt that that will hurt the democratic system, right? If we, if we, uh, penalize our presidential predecessors, right. You know, again, this would be pretty extraordinary to do this against Trump, uh again if, if if he did steal nuclear secrets for example that would be pretty extraordinary and might warrant some sort of prosecution but again the prosecutor always has discretion right well let, let and, me interrupt
0: you on that too and ask you it, would his intent matter and the reason I ask that is because intent mattered uh in the in the Tom Drake case intent did not matter in my case uh, this is never. This is something that's never been decided at the uh, federal appellate level. So Tom Drake's attorney, or, I'm sorry, judge, threw out his case because Tom didn't have criminal intent. In my case, the judge said that she was not going to respect the precedent set in that case, and that in my case, my the the fact that I did not have criminal intent did not matter. So because it's not settled law. Do you think it would matter in in a case against Donald Trump? Did he have this material just because he's a hoarder? He wanted it for his memoirs. uh, He didn't realize that he had taken it. He liked it because it was cool and it made him feel special. Does it matter why he had these documents?
4: Well, it could. Certainly. I mean, you are right when it comes to certain crimes. As I learned in law school, some require intent, others do not, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for example, if I'm speeding, it doesn't matter whether I knew I was speeding or whether I meant to speed. If I was speeding and, and I, I'm caught, I can be fine, Interesting. Uh, you know? And that's true with other crimes. <laughs> now, there are other crimes that where intent is required. I'm not sure with this particular issue, you know, taking... Presidential documents, whether there is a men's rea requirement an intent right. requirement, um my guess is there's not. I guess there's some bright right lines drawn, and if you take certain documents, it's illegal. so I'm not sure intent does matter so much. oh, very interesting,
1: Dan, um let me move on a little bit. I want to ask you about this uh, lawsuit by a group of journalists and lawyers who visited WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange while he was living um, under political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. This morning they sued the CIA and they sued former CIA director Mike Pompeo, alleging that the agency under Pompeo violated their civil rights, their rights to privacy when it spied on them uh, when they would engage with Assange. Two of the plaintiffs are attorneys who have represented Assange. The other two are journalists for Der Spiegel when the German media organization partnered with WikiLeaks to publish documents on Afghanistan and Iraq and our wars there. And so I wonder what you what do you make of this action? What what is the U.S. government going to try to do uh, to make it go away? And and how successful do you think they're going to be able to be?
4: Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much they're going to do to make it go away. Um... I think that those are certainly serious claims. I think they should not be spying on attorney-client conversations, Um, though I don't think, again, I I don't feel like there's a lot of uh, public scrutiny about the Assange case on any type of issue and that the U.S. Mm -hmm. doesn't feel particularly concerned about it. I also think they they feel like it'll come out in the wash one way or another when and if he's extradited. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen. You know, again, I think the goal is to kind of keep him in limbo until he dies. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in which all that will, you know, all those issues will die with him. So I think they'll just throw this onto the pile of. You know, irregularities that the entire case involves truthfully.
1: I mean do you think are we going to see it, it, they so they're just going to use all their resources to drag this out, right? They're not going to get you don't see this being dismissed just on its face.
4: No, I don't think so. I think they will drag this out, the whole thing out as much as possible because they don't want to they don't want to try this case. They don't want to have high holders of high office and and former holders of high office called to testify about this case which they could. Mm-hmm. I mean, that which Assange could easily make happen if he were tried. Mm-hmm. They're never going to want to face that.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: They just want to persecute this guy.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: And make an example of him. And they've done it well so far. And they're going to continue to do that. I mean, why hasn't he been brought already? You know, I mean, this has been going on forever. This for years. Yeah. One of the most incredible violations of due process that one can think of where, you know, everything we know about the due process requires a speedy trial, right? Because if you're innocent, you should be tried and let off the hook mm-hmm. and let free. And this has violated every norm in that respect. Yeah. True. And he's not a violent criminal. Even if you assume the worst thing about him. the worst thing they're claiming, mm-hmm. no one's set a physical threat to anyone, yeah. you know, there's no reason that he should be held indefinitely, as he has been in the, in this instance. It's, it's really shocking. But that's what I think we're going to see continue to happen.
0: Dan, uh, Congressman Bobby Rush of uh, Illinois, he's a former uh, Black Panther Party member, sponsored a, a bill in May that would forcibly uh declassify all documents related to COINTELPRO, the FBI's notorious um, efforts to spy on pretty much everybody from the Black Panther Party to Martin Luther King to women who supported ERA to uh, the National Lawyers Guild and everyone in between. Uh, this bill would force this declassification. It would allow the government uh, six months to review and redact documents that uh, that would otherwise reveal sources and methods. And it would also um, mandate that the, uh, that the FBI's headquarters building um, remove its name uh, of J. Edgar Hoover, which would be lovely. But the bill was referred to a subcommittee on May the 5th, and it's just been stuck there ever since. That means it's dead. It's not going anywhere. Do you think there's any support on Capitol Hill at all uh, for the declassification of what are probably millions of pages of documents related to COINTELPRO? Or do you think that people just don't care? This This was a show, Bill. Uh, Bobby Rush is a good guy. He's trying to do the right thing, but he knows that there's no chance that this stuff is going to be declassified. Or do you think it, it's it's just that it's stuck in this committee because people don't know about it? And if people knew about it, they would want this information declassified.
4: I do think this is just a show, and I don't think they're going to declassify that. I think that's the last thing that people pushing this bill want to declassify. Huh. I think it's great that it's being. You know that there are people like Rush that are pushing for that. Yeah, and I'd like to see it classified, but I cannot imagine that.
0: That's a shame. But I agree. Hate to say
1: it, <laughs> <laughs> Dan. While we have you, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, some context to understand this labor movement, uh, labor moment that we're still in in the United States. There was an interesting reports in in these times that looked at some research done by uh, Radish Research, this labor research organization that shows, I mean, what we know that union density in the United States has steadily fallen. And uh, since 2010, in particular, it's fallen from almost 12 percent to just over 10 percent. There are more than half a million fewer uh, union members than there were then in terms of an absolute number. So, of course, that we, we know that. We already understand that that's been happening. What hasn't been getting as much attention is that over the same period of time that this report looks at, from 2010 to 2020, um, organized labor has actually been accumulating quite a lot of money, uh, it had uh, in 2020 29.1 billion in net assets. That figure had almost doubled since 2010. So as union density goes down, uh, union assets increase, though union spending has not kept pace with that increase. The report says there's been actually no investment in union organizers, organized labor, employees. 19 percent fewer employees in 2020 than it did in 2010. However, there's been an increase in management positions with organized labor, uh, and the number of people earning salaries over 100,000 seems to have increased. Um, The number of strikes has decreased. The report found uh, that the number of workers involved in major work stoppages fell from a high of 1.8 million in 1974 to 80,000 in 2021, and organized labor has paid out an average of $70 million a year in strike benefits since 2010, which is less than half a percent of its net assets or revenues. And so, you know, I I wonder how we should add this to our picture of what is happening in American labor, especially because so many of these new unions, uh, these new uh, organization efforts are brand new, right? You have brand new unions themselves starting up. You have uh, organizations that had never been unionized before, you know, deciding on their own, not necessarily partnering with some of these bigger, um, uh, long-lasting organizations. And so, how should this reporting help us understand the challenges that that this movement faces, and how should uh, this guide some of these new organizers in how they work with some of these existing organizations?
4: Yeah, well, I think that we are seeing. The difficulty in unions being able to negotiate wages and benefits that are keeping up uh, with inflation and with economic dislocation. I mean, the thing I saw was that if we, you know, that while we've been talking about $15 an hour hour as the living wage, we've been talking about it so long it should now be $24 an hour, -hmm. right? And so unions are going to have to focus on that. They're going to have to try to be able to leverage community support and, and legislative support in order to increase people's uh, pay to the point where they can actually make a living wage. And as you say, mm-hmm. I think that they're struggling to keep up with that. Um, and so what you're seeing is people who, can't afford to live. But, you know, you see an increase in homelessness, you see increase in people not being able to afford health care. And again, unions have to be able to deliver that sort of thing.
1: It does seem like it's also, though, painting a picture where you have a, a an organization that has been kind of content to Uh, you know, make itself comfortable, right? And accumulate some of these assets and not really try to expand that influence as much as you might hope. Do you think like some of this, some of this activity should actually be a wake up call for uh, the existing structures of organized labor in the United States to say, it's time for you to stop, you know, resting on your laurels is not even really an accurate phrase here, since that would imply some great, great victories in the last couple decades, but, you know, that it is actually time for you to start, um, you know, agitating with us and trying to expand instead of trying to protect what you have.
4: Yes. Yeah, so well, I totally agree with that. Um, and I worked for the steelworkers for 26 years and I felt that. And I felt that, yes, what the goal, and obviously I was part of this, I made a good living there. Um, and it seemed like the goal was to more or less maintain the bureaucracy, to maintain the wages and benefits for the staff, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Rather than to empower and grow the movement, right? It was all about Mm -hmm. just protecting the institution so that the people who worked for it could have good, uh, you know, lives. And I'll give you an example. The UE, which is a tiny union, pretty radical union, also based in Pittsburgh, they have a rule that their, the highest paid employee cannot make more than the highest paid member. Mm. And I think that that's a good rule mm-hmm. because, I mean, I, you know, as a lawyer for the steelworkers, I made much more than most of our employees that we represented, right? And there's something a little weird and, and bad about that. And again, it, it creates incentives, as you say, more or less to keep coasting not to put more money into growing and being relevant, but just to protect the institution so that, again, Mm -hmm. everyone within it can prosper whether or not the members are doing so well. And I don't want to overstate that. I think the steelworkers did and does a good job on behalf of its members, but there is something a bit perverse about that. And if you look at the most extreme example of like, the IWW, they barely pay people at all to do the work. It's largely based on volunteers. And again, the idea being that uh, all resources should go towards the work and the movement rather than to the people that are working for the union, mm-hmm. if you understand that. you know, And I, I think there's some happy medium there that has to be found. Because right now, we're looking at a union movement that, yeah, appears to at the last AFL-CIO convention, they seem to basically be content with like a 1% growth, which actually means death, right? If they they only grow 1%, they're losing much more than that every year. They're basically planning for a soft landing, which has been a very big criticism of the union movement for a long time. And that concerns
5: me greatly hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like there, th- this movement should, you know, hold some lessons, both for the people who are who are just starting out, who are very excited and maybe for for some of the people who have uh, been content to yeah, you know, sort of stake out some ground and let it just be whittled down slowly. Right. Instead of quickly, which is not I think not going to be acceptable to some of the, the new uh, labor agitators and, and activists and organizers, which I think is great. So, yeah, I mean, still still a lot to come, I guess, to see how this moment is going to continue to play out. That was Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney. He's a human rights activist. He's an author. Dan, you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find your latest book? Uh, yes. Well, my
4: newest one in Nicaragua will come out soon by Clarity Press, uh, uh, which I'm very excited about. But in the meantime, you can go to Skyhorse.com and find. Uh, my other books. Excellent.
1: Fantastic. Dan, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Still on Radio Sputnik, still live in D.C. We'll be back in a sec.
0: Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio. My co-host Michelle Whitty is not in the studio, but she's still with us. Violence flared over the past week in Israel and Palestine, with Israeli forces killing at least 47 people in Gaza, including two leaders or purported leaders of the Islamic Jihad organization and a Palestinian shooting eight people in Jerusalem, including four Jewish American tourists. Most of the violence happened after a tenuous ceasefire between the Israelis and the Palestinians fell apart over the weekend. We're joined by Ariel Gold. Ariel is Executive Director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the oldest peace and justice organization in the United
5: States. Welcome, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me on. And I, I just want to begin by um, mentioning that uh, it was at least 16 children were also...
0: Oh, Oh, good Lord. Well, you know what? Let's let's start there. Uh, When I left for work on Friday, it appeared that the ceasefire between the Israelis and the Gaza Palestinians was holding. The Israelis had killed this uh, one Islamic Jihad leader, and that was pretty much the end of it. But then all hell broke loose over the weekend. What happened?
5: Uh, I want to give it a little bit. I want to go back a little bit further and lay out what happened. Oh, for a good, I forget if it was like two or three weeks, but for a good long time, Israel Israeli forces have been carrying out nightly raids Ooh. in the uh, Jenin or sorry, the Nablus area. Okay, going in and uh, picking people off. There, that's the same area where uh, Palestinian Palestinian American journalist Shireen Abu Akla was yes. killed. Oh, they were they've been doing this for weeks, going in nightly raids. And then they went in and they arrested an Islamic Jihad leader um, there. And then they said, oh, well, well, actually, before then, so Islamic Jihad in Gaza made some blustery, you know, we're going to retaliate, which is what pretty much every um, entity does. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and Israel said, oh, my God, they're going to retaliate. We better amass. They called up uh, 25,000 reserves. Oh, my goodness. Massed at the border of Gaza because they're coming to get us. So then they amassed at the border of Gaza because so they're coming to get them, but uh, Islamic Jihad didn't fire. So then they're standing at the border saying, we're ready, not firing, not firing. So finally Israel said, well, it? we'll just have to, to start ourselves. So then they uh, carried out a first strike. Oh my gosh. Themselves, and then Islamic Jihad finally fired back and then they said, oh, my God, we're under attack. So yeah. now we've got to go to war and beat them down and carried out a massacre, just plainly a massacre. And, you know, I want to frame this in some timing for Israel. The last uh, massacre that we saw in Gaza, again, initiated uh, by Israel, provoked by Israel, uh, occurred during the last election, while Benjamin Netanyahu, who was then prime minister, was trying mm-hmm. to on to power well what do you think is going on in israel right now yeah another election and prior to this uh, massacre the polls had netanyahu coming back in the election Mm -hmm. benny gantz who's the defense minister and was also the defense minister during the brutal brutal assault in 2014 when, uh, which killed over 550 children, over 2,000 people, he also led that. So this same war criminal, uh, you know, wants to stay in, and uh, Pete wants to stay in, he's the current caretaker. So what do you know? And I call this an election war.
0: You know, it's you've anticipated one of my follow-up questions. Uh, the Israeli government right now is a caretaker government. Uh, it's not supposed to be doing things like launching wars, um, and I was going to ask you why you thought this was the case. And I wondered if it was an effort by Benny Gantz and Naftali Bennett at all to stop Benjamin Netanyahu, who can out the other, right? And with an election right around the corner, it's scheduled for November the first. This is an this is a, a, an opportunity for one right-wing politician, or or two, who are partnered to try to out-hawk another right-wing politician. Would you agree?
5: The campaign, it was a campaign stunt more than it was a war. Wow. It wasn't even a war. Hamas didn't even join in in the fighting and that, that we could go into for a variety of reasons. But uh, it was a campaign stunt. And at the cost of over 44 people, the majority of whom were civilians, and a large portion of whom were children. So... <laughs> I have to ask you. That says all you need to know uh, for how much is mm-hmm. values Palestinian life.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, that's the sad truth right there. The, the Israeli um, government, when briefing the media over the weekend, used the word preemptive a couple of times. You've you've just explained that um, still pr- a preemptive strike, even to take out one purported leader of a group like Islamic Jihad would be a violation of the, of the ceasefire. Why negotiate a ceasefire if you're going to disrespect it anyway? And I mean, killing children, this is a war crime.
5: And yet the polls in Israel uh, show mass approval for this, which nothing new. we're quite familiar with that. Um, uh, You know, of course, this was a preemptive strike, but I want to speak to something else that happened. So they did take out a number of Islamic Jihad leaders, along with the civilians, including children. But one of the leaders, and I forget his name offhand, he was the the main top leader. This was a guy that worked with Hamas, because Islamic Jihad is more uh, militant than Hamas. And this was a guy that was, you know, for Islamic Jihad, we could have called a moderate. He, he worked with Hamas, and so there was some coordination in Hamas, you know, and so some degree of, you know, kind of reasonability. So, but he's been taken out, and his spot will be filled by people who are far more extreme and far more violent. And this empowered, as just as, you know, other—just as we, we look at uh, U.S. stations in, in Iran and how they empowered— um, In the the Iranian elections, the hardliners, right, and then we saw the results with the hardliners winning the Iranian elections. Mm -hmm. Well, here, so Israel has just empowered um, the the more militants in Gaza, given them an upper hand.
0: What's what's the reaction been um, from the West Bank Palestinians? Uh, Generally, they try to stay out of these fights that the Israelis have with the Gazans. Are they staying out of this one as well?
5: Out of these fights, I would say they are heartbroken yeah. and um, infuriate infuriated, and feel full solidarity because there's really no division except the artificial one yes. that Israel has created. Geographic the West bank in Gaza. Th- these are families, and their hearts are ache for um, for the people of Gaza. Each time one of these horrific massacres take place, and there are will be both, and there were this time. Um, nonviolent protests in the streets in the West Bank, as well as scuffles and and deaths in the West Bank from that. And then we also saw in the West Bank Flashpoint city of Hebron, the most heavily occupied uh, place in the West Bank, that during this, um, uh, there there was uh, at least one young person killed there. And we also saw the settlers in Hebron, sorry, this is what I was going to say, become incredibly emboldened during the Gaza assault. So they were, you know, attacking Palestinians um, at, at a higher rate than usual. Uh-huh. He said, oh, you know, you're bombing Gaza. Well, we can just, you know, throw rocks and garbage and, and attack the people here.
0: Good grief. Uh, do you see any hope at all, depending on who is able to cobble together a government in November? I I, I can't. I I really want to be optimistic, and I just can't seem to get myself there. Because does it really matter if it's Naftali Bennett or Benny Gantz or Benjamin Netanyahu? Their their ideas, their policies on Palestine are identical or almost identical.
5: Absolutely. Um, You know, this was look. This was called the change government, and there was all this you know hope for this change government, but it was new government. Massacres, uh, really just, just no difference. And, you know, either Netanyahu will come back in or uh, Lapid it will continue and maybe Bennett will continue. But, you know, the, the real question is what can we do here in the U.S. as we see public opinion changing, as we see members of Congress uh, willing to take more of a risk, more and more of a risk to support Palestinian rights? So, what can we do here to um, support? the the Palestinian people, as they struggle with apartheid and war crimes.
0: Right. Uh, I want to ask you a foreign policy question. When Joe Biden went to Israel and then Saudi Arabia on the Saudi leg, um, the second day of his visit there was really meant to to lobby and to pressure uh, the members of the Gulf Cooperation Council plus Egypt and um, Iraq, who the, the countries that don't have relations with the Israelis, to do exactly that, to establish relations with the Israelis. And he pitched this regional defense cooperation agreement uh, that would focus on um, confronting the Iranians. Do you think anything might come of that vis-a-vis Israel on the one side and Saudi Arabia and Iraq on the other side? Israel already has relations, for example, with the UAE, with Bahrain, with Morocco, with Sudan. But the real crown jewels are going to be Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Do you see that ever happening?
5: Let's keep in mind that under under the table, informally, these relations have already been going on for a long time. Look no further than the sharing of uh, Pegasus, Israel's spyware software that uh, Saudi uses to spy on dissidents there. So, this is really a kind of a false you know idea that the, that they are any longer enemies, and the reason for that is quite simple that repressive regimes love other repressive regimes.
0: yeah, I, I could see that absolutely. and frankly, I think that the the reason why the Israelis and the Saudis don't have relations already, formal diplomatic relations, is because of Saudi Arabia's uh uh religious infrastructure. Uh, they're just not there yet. but I think if it were up to the Saudi royal family. It would have been a done deal a long time ago.
5: And uh, they're, they're keeping with public opinion in Saudi, which uh, does support Palestinians.
0: Yeah, yep, that is right. That is right. Um, Ariel, uh, you spent a lot of time at Code Pink, leading Code Pink. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and how people can follow your work.
5: Right, so after almost seven years at Code Pink and, you know, really, really incredible work, um, I have accepted a position and moved into a position as the executive director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is a faith-based organization huh. that began in 1915. Wow. The oldest peace and justice organization in the U.S. And both such um, incredible members as Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, I have Martin Luther King's uh, membership card from December 6, 1958. Wow. Yeah, so I'm the first uh, Jewish Executive Director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and I'm really thrilled. And um, I encourage folks to check out our website, S-O-R-U-S-A dot to sign up there to get our newsletters. And if folks would like to join uh, Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh and so many amazing others in becoming members, uh, it's free, and we'd love to have you. And please follow us on social media. uh, F-O-R-P, P-E-A-C-E, F-O-R-P, on Twitter. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us, Ariel Gold. Ariel, as she just said, is executive director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the oldest peace and justice organization in the United States. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take one more short break and come back.
1: Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And John, there are so many stories that we didn't get to talk about that I want to mention and more keep coming. So just yell at me if you have something that you need to get in here in the last 10 minutes, because uh, I have a bunch Um do you want to do you want a Salman Rushdie update or do you want an update on the shooting on the set of Rust? Yeah, let's start
0: let's with? do Salman Rushdie first, since so many people are are so concerned about his condition.
1: He's recovering. Yay! Yay. Good. I saw a headline. I think it was. I forget if it was this morning or yesterday that said uh, they're taking him off the ventilator, and I thought, oh no, but it's because he's, you yeah. know, doing better. Yes. And he's-
0: his son said he- that his spirits are good, he's joking, although it looks like he's still gonna lose that eye. He has some liver damage and some nerve damage, but it it's it looks like he's gonna make it.
1: Mm-hmm. Poor guy. Uh, the spokesman for Iran's foreign ministry came out and had a nasty little statement to make, where he said uh, no one's to blame but Rushdie and his supporters in the aftermath of the, uh, of this uh, attack, which you know, yeah, is p- pretty garbage. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, callous. but good for Rushdie. Very glad to see that he, he's recovering. Especially, I mean, he's not a he's not a young man.
0: No, and that he's seventy five.
1: A, yeah, a, a terribly violent attack. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Good news over the weekend.
0: Yeah, that was on that front. Definitely.
1: Um, Do you want to hear this rust update that could bode (laughs) ill for Alec Baldwin? I know a personal friend of yours, John.
0: Yeah. Dear friend of mine. Good old Alec Baldwin.
1: (laughs) So Alec Baldwin, um, (laughs) from the start of this terrible accident on the set of rust in which uh, the cinematographer was killed and director was wounded, I believe. Right. It was Talia. Yep. Yeah. Um, He has said he did not pull the trigger of the gun that he was holding and aiming at the camera for the shot. He said it just went off in his hand, which seemed unbelievable from the start. Yeah. But, you know, this whole thing seems to be such a mess. That, yeah. You know, like you could maybe uh, lay one more unbelievable aspect onto the pile. And I'd say, all right, I mean, I'm not going to dismiss the, the possibility of that completely. Well, it seems like the FBI has come out and said the gun could not have been fired without the trigger having been pulled. And they went through some technical explanations of why that's the case. Um, But yeah, Alec Baldwin can say all he wants in in news interviews, but uh, someone had to pull that trigger. I don't think he hasn't denied holding the gun. I think he also said he would never have pointed it at the camera, but that also seems like it doesn't make any sense. And also some of the stuff you think like I, I don't think that Alec Baldwin thought that he was holding a weapon that could hurt anyone. You know, right. So I don't know. Right. I don't I wouldn't say what this means for his like for his legal liability here. But I don't think this you know, I'm not saying now I think Alec Baldwin meant to murder these people or this
0: this person. You know, but if there is any criminal culpability, it's going to be minor. Like, I mean, I I can't imagine anything worse than manslaughter, too, which in many cases doesn't even carry jail time with it. Um, Well.
1: But, Associated with him actually having held the weapon, you mean? Yes. I yes. Think
0: yes. Exactly.
1: His position as as a, a producer. That's different he, on Rust. Yes. Is maybe what's going to be. Yeah. That,
0: because it's going to be a civil suit. Because as the producer, he also owns the movie, and so yeah. he's the final authority on that film. Uh, we already know that the families of the victims are are going to sue or have already sued. And um, there's only so far that insurance can can protect you in a case like that. So that's where he's going to really be hurt.
1: Um, Also, in some good news, we saw over the weekend that Venezuela and Colombia have um, appointed ambassadors to their respective capitals. And I saw. Some reports earlier today that they had uh, formally you know reestablished relations, but I haven't seen that confirmed, but certainly they are on on the way to rebuilding ties, and these new appointments that happened uh, over the last couple of days are are part of that. So that's I mean that seems great, like great news for the people of of both countries that they can you know begin to work together a little bit more rather mm-hmm. than being divided, particularly by their relationship with the United States.
0: I I thought that was dramatically good news over the weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Venezuela and Colombia have been on the brink of war for a long time, in part because of U.S. foreign policy. We're stridently Mm -hmm. anti-Venezuela and we're solidly pro-Colombia. We arm the Colombians. We train the Colombians. We won't even Mm -hmm. recognize the government of Venezuela. So this Mm -hmm. is a giant leap forward in, uh, in foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. Really great news.
1: Also great news for more of your personal friends uh, in Saudi Arabia, (laughs) and particularly Saudi Aramco. Um, Saudi Aramco said yesterday that its profits had jumped 90% in the second quarter compared to the same time last year. And so its half-year earnings are nearly $88 billion. So Saudi Arabia definitely taking this moment and absolutely making the most of it right with yeah. the last time we talked about Saudi Arabian oil prices is it was about them um, increasing production only a tiny amount but raising the prices on their uh, baseline costs mm. for a bunch of uh, regions right John that's right that's right yeah.
0: you know Saudi Ramco is the is the biggest company in the world by revenue um mm-hmm. this made it get it get bigger by leaps and bounds. And it's not like the Saudis are sharing the wealth or anything. I I remember when I was first serving in Saudi Arabia, 1990, 1991, the U S was trying to get the Saudis to build a port in Gaza uh, and a water desalination plant because Gaza, uh, Gaza Palestinians don't have any clean water. Right. Or if they do have water, it's only for two or three hours a day. And even back then, the Saudis said, "Yeah, no, we don't uh, we're not going to do that. Here they are, eighty eight billion dollars richer and they're still not going to do that.
1: And you know what's funny? I remember I don't I think maybe this was in 2015, um, but Saudi Aramco, they were going to do an IPO on it and they were having trouble drumming up. Interest, because I think you know, se- seven years ago or whatever time this was, there was a sense that uh, that governments were maybe they were going to get a little bit serious about climate change. Maybe a country whose economy is entirely dependent on oil isn't going to be the safest in- investment, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you know, like that, there was a time when it seemed like maybe things were going to start to change just a little bit. I think this is also because of the um, the fracking revolution in oil. And so you see, you know, se- 7 years on, right, with the evidence of a climate crisis only accumulating, what have we done except, you know, further further enrich uh the the you know, one of the most repressive and nasty governments uh selling us oil mm-hmm. <laughs> all over the world. Yeah, I mean it's it's sad. Remember remember 7 years ago when we had some hope for the future, John?
0: <laughs> yeah, the good old days. Of seven years ago.
1: (laughs) Honestly, I mean, I think I have to say maybe more of it was because of uh, because of fracking and what that did to oil prices rather than, you know, anyone seriously thinking we were going to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. But still, there was a time when they were trying to peddle this company and not finding enough people interested. And look what's changed. Exactly.
0: I do have a story that I wanted to raise Uh, over the course of our show today. Um, I've gotten several uh, push notifications from a variety of media outlets saying that uh, Rudy Giuliani's attorneys have confirmed that he is the subject of um, a criminal investigation in Georgia having Mm -hmm. to do with trying to get uh, the secretary of state of Georgia to throw out the results of the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't imagine, Michelle, Rudy Giuliani getting in any more trouble. Then he's already in. He's lost his license to practice law in the District of Columbia and Mm -hmm. in the state of New York. Um, He's broke. He's going through his fourth divorce right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. His in his divorce filings released by the uh, New York Times, he Mm -hmm. said that that he needs six hundred thousand dollars a year to maintain his current lifestyle. He he spends more than ten thousand wow. dollars a year on cigars. God. Yeah, he's a oh. he's a member of fourteen country clubs. Can you imagine such a thing?
1: How how are some of these people still alive? Ten thousand dollars a year on cigars. I, I mean, I, 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 who who can even explain it? I don't know. No, but this Do you guy, also see. I sent you this link. Uh, you see Lindsey Graham's going to have to testify oh, before yeah. this grand jury in Georgia he, as well. He
0: tried to pull a fast one a week or two ago by saying that uh, because he's a senator, he has, uh, he has uh, executive privilege. And they said, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, senators don't have any kind of privilege. So you're coming down here and testifying or you're going to be held in contempt.
1: No. Nope. Did you also see that they're going to recount this Kansas yeah, uh, abortion I, vote? Know,
0: I saw the headline. Can you explain this to me? This vote wasn't even close. It was 60 nope. to 40.
1: Nope. It's uh, There was a 165,000 difference uh, in votes, but uh, they are going to go along with the request to hand recount it, I guess, just because they were asked. So they're going to do it. I mean, this is what I'm, I'm seeing by skimming this article here. Uh, there's an online site raising money for, for a recount, and I guess that they are going to go through with it. I mean, hard mm-hmm. to hard to make, you know, one hundred and sixty five thousand votes go away, but surely someone out there is going to try it. We'll have to leave it there. We'll see if there's more <laughs> to this story uh, and come back with more on that tomorrow. But for now, got to say thanks to all of our guests and to the producers and engineers here as usual. And on behalf of John Kiriaku and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.